We're looking at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 obviously comes after what we were doing last week. We looked at Stephen, who was given the role of looking after the widows in the church. And so we're looking at another thing that happens to Stephen this week. So keep in mind who he was from last week. And then Terry's disappeared. I would love to read the whole of this chapter. It's a long one because it's, a, it's the whole Old Testament in one chapter. It's amazing. And so, Terry, last chance. Are we going to read the whole thing? You should have just done up while I was out. <laughs> well, I'm just, I don't want to, you know. It's all good. We're going to read the whole thing. Okay, here we go. And you might like to just listen. It's a magnificent summary. Is this true? The high priest asked. Brothers and fathers, Stephen said. Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this land you now live in. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would enslave and oppress them 400 years I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same with Jacob and Jacob with the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favour and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Then a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors the first time. The second time, Joseph was revealed to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and his ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. As the time was nearing, sorry, as the time was drawing near to fulfil the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt, until a different king, who did not know Joseph, ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. 
At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home three months. And when he was left outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. As he was approaching the age of 40, he decided to visit his brothers, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescued rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, men, are you brothers? Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbour pushed him away, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this disclosure, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. After another 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have observed the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to rescue them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He was the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him away and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods and, we will, and who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, oh, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol and were celebrating what their hands had made. Then God turned away and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephaim the images that you made to worship. So I will deport you beyond Babylon. 
Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. He found favour in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears and together rushed against him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. I'm excited. That was good. Um, yeah, we, we've, got a, we've got a feast this morning. We've actually got the end of chapter 6 to the start of chapter 8. So we've got a big chunk of scripture that we're going to be looking at. But I'm really excited to be diving in. Uh, so let's pray that God will be softening our hearts and just showing us again how good Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that this morning you would show us again just how good he is and what it means to follow him. And I pray all of this in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, I remember when I was living at home, we had this dog called Mikey, and I just reckon he was probably the fattest beagle on the face of the planet. Um, He had the most incredible nose, as most beagles do, Um, so much so that when I kind of 
came home one day and I walked into the front gate. On the front lawn, I see this box of favorites that are empty and then dotted across the front lawn are all these empty packets. And we're like, hey, that's how you got so fat. And also, wow, what a, what a nose you, you have. But the thing is, apart from Mikey being an incredible, I don't know, being able, being able to sniff things out really well, um, he didn't like something. Mikey hated receiving help. Um, he resisted particularly uh, medical attention. I remember when you tried to give him a tablet, it was like you were offering him razor blades. You're like, Mikey, just take the tablet. And he just wouldn't. Or if his eye got all pussy and you try to put some cream on it, you'd just be sort of chasing him round and round and round in circles. Um, no, you'd actually just be watching mum chasing him round and round and round in circles, of course. Love you, mum. Um, and you'd think, Mikey, you, I know change is scary, but we're just trying to help. Like, wh- why are you resisting us here? See, what we see from this passage is we see a group of people resisting something, resisting someone, resisting the message of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we've seen the message of Jesus has been spreading like wildfire. But it's also its followers, Jesus' followers, have undergone persecution. Earlier in chapter 6, we, we meet a man called Stephen. He's described as being full of the Spirit. Uh, he's called upon to be a leader, to, to help manage the distribution of uh, some of the food to the Hellenistic widows. And he's doing that well. Uh, God is working through him in miraculous ways. He's, he's healing people. But we also see that he's speaking. He's speaking out. And there are some people there from the synagogue who are unhappy, who are resisting what he's saying. And I just think it's fascinating. The first reason why they're not liking him is because they can't beat him. It says they can't beat his wisdom. But then they get more and more fired up and they start kind of riling up the crowds among them. And then they get Stephen dragged into the courtroom. And that's when things really start heating up. They bring, first off, some accusations. But we see that these accusations are from false witnesses. They claim that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God in verse 11. And then in verse 13, it says this. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. See, Stephen, he's dragged into the courtroom and and first up we see these accusations that apparently they reckon Stephen is blaspheming. He's speaking against God. He's speaking against Moses and the law. And they sort of bring that all together, that he's speaking against the temple. And they're not happy. We see, firstly, the accusations. But secondly, they ask him, is this true at the start of chapter 7? And secondly, we see he gives... A defense. Stephen gives 
an apologia, a defense, an answer, which if we are Christians, we are all called to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. Stephen does that. But his defense is not a short or brief one. Like, it is an epic sermon of epic proportions. Like, it's probably the longest recorded one in the Bible. It's huge. It's at least the longest one in Acts. It's a huge feast that we're going to tuck into this morning. So I hope you're ready to take a breath as we dive into what we just read. And so what he does is he takes on these accusations. The biggest one was that he was speaking badly against the temple. See, the temple that was established after King David. King David, uh, one of the kings of, of God's people when they're in the promised land. It was after David, through David's son, Solomon. This temple was set up. And it was set up because that's where God dwelt during that time. And apparently, Stephen, he's speaking against it. And so how, did, how does Stephen tackle this whole temple issue? Well, one of my lecturers uh, from SNBC, Alan Thompson, says this. What we see Stephen do is he gives his listeners a theological geography lesson. Do you get that? He gives them a theological geography lesson, a God-centered geography lesson. See, the Sanhedrin and the Jews, they love the temple so much, but Stephen takes them back through the Bible, back through the Old Testament, to show them that God was geographically moving all over the place. That he can't be confined to simply one building. And so as we look at this sermon, we're going we're gonna to move through three scenes, three key points in history. We're going to be moving through it quick. Um, but as we do, I want you to take notice of the geographical location of where God is in all these three scenes. All right, let's go. Scene one. And scene one is with... Abraham. Man, the Sanhedrin loved Abraham. We love Abraham. God, he made big promises to Abraham that, that from him would come a great nation, a great people. And, and this great nation would be a blessing to other nations. But not only that, God promised Abraham that he would bring his people into a special promised land. Let's see what he says in verse 2 of chapter 7. Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he settled in Haran. Do you notice that? It's in a foreign land. Verse 3. God told them to leave, get out of your country and come, come to the land. I will show you. God's moving. Then verse 4, it says, they came out of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. God is geographically moving. After Abraham, he has some kids, one of which is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons is Joseph, the second youngest, the favorite kid. Scene one with Abraham. Scene two, we have Joseph. Let's read verse 9. It says this. And they sold him, Joseph, into Egypt. 
But God was with him. God was there with him in that foreign place. Verse 10, he, a part of God's people, became the ruler over Egypt. Then verse 17, people flourished and multiplied in Egypt. God's moving with his people in foreign places. But as we know, when, when God's people, that when they settled in Egypt and they flourished there, they became slaves. And that leads us to scene three with Moses, where, where God raised up Moses, his leader, to set his people free. Scene three with Moses. Verse 20 of chapter 7 says this, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. I want to pause there and make a side note. I don't know if you noticed at the end of chapter 6 it says that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Stephen being someone who knew God. There's a bit of a link between Moses and Stephen. Moses being someone who sets God's people free and knows God as well. He, he was beautiful in God's sight. Verse 22, he grows up, he sees injustice, he stuffs up, he, he kills someone, but Stephen says he, he avenged this person. Yet he's rejected and Moses flees from Egypt. Then verse 29 says, and he became an exile in the land of Midian, another foreign place. And then verse 30 says this, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of the burning bush. Then verse 33, Then the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God is there in the, build, in the wilderness, in the bush. And then God used Moses, worked through Moses to save his people even though they kept resisting and they would often turn to idols as we see in this sermon. All right, we can, we can breathe, take a breath. Can you see what Stephen's doing here? He's doing so much. We could talk about this sermon all day, but do you see one key thing that he's doing in this defense? He's saying, do you think God only dwells in a building in this temple? God's been on the move. Like He's been in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in Midian, in this bush. He, he's been actively moving all before the temple even existed. God's been actively working to pursue his people to get closer and closer. And the temple wasn't the ultimate goal. And he highlights this again later in verse 46. Where God's people, God sets them free from Egypt. He brings them to the promised land. He sets up kings, rulers, one of which was David that we read about here in verse 46. He, David, found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who, who built him a house. However, the most, the most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? See, the temple was great for a time, but God is not confined to the temple. The temple was merely a shadow, a sign, pointing to something, someone greater. I don't know about you guys, but I love Christmas. And I remember when I was a little kid and mum and dad would get you a present that was probably a little bit too big to wrap up. And maybe they wanted to kind of save wrapping paper and help the environment or they just couldn't be bothered. I don't know. I don't know. But when, when you got something that big, like a bike, what they would do is they'd get a long, long bit of string. They'd tie one end to the wheel and then they'd get the string and sort of weave it through the whole house. And then they'd give you the other end and you'd be like, you beauty. And they'd say, go get them. <laughs> and I remember on Christmas morning when you'd be following that string, you'd be so excited. You'd be going through the whole house just going, this is so, so, so good. But it'd be really strange if you um, stopped midway along that string and just said, oh, this is is good enough. Stop here. No kid does that on Christmas morning. Like you get to the end, you get to the goal, you get to the bike. See, throughout the Old Testament, we see this golden thread, this golden string, where we see things like the temple, but they're all leading us to the goal. See, The temple was a sign of God's presence. God dwelt in the temple for a time, but it was leading us to Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. But Stephen says to this synagogue and then to the Sanhedrin, to this courtroom, you guys have stopped short. You've stopped before Jesus. You've set up camp along the string. You've missed what God is doing. And because they've missed what God has been doing, Stephen, he says some pretty gutsy and remarkable things. I don't know if you noticed that. At the end of this sermon, he just, he doesn't hold punches. He just goes for it. Let me read this. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Crazy. Verse 53, you received the law under the direction of angels, yet you have not kept it. Stephen says, you're as stiff and as cold as the idols God's people used to worship. He says, you're hard-hearted. You've missed what God has been doing. You've settled for the temple, for the sign, for the shadow, for the string And you've missed what the temple had been pointing to. You've missed Jesus. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. 
And just like God's people rejected Moses at times, you're rejecting me and you've rejected the Son of God, the Messiah. You need to take lots of breaths in this passage. What a courtroom scene with accusations and then an epic defense. But what happens after this sermon? Do they get up and just go, oh, preach it, brother. That was great. Give them a pat on the back. No, it says they gnash their teeth. They yell and they scream. They don't want anything to do with it. They don't want to listen. They pick up stones to kill him. I read that stoning, um, it was hot, tiring work. Unless you got them in the right spot, it would take a while, stoning. And yet in all of this, what does Stephen see? He sees Jesus. And where is Jesus? Is he in the temple? No. Where is Jesus? Jesus is standing, kind of like a witness in this courtroom scene. But also he sees Jesus standing and Jesus is standing in heaven to show us that he is sovereign. He rules. He is the fulfillment. He is the goal. And he is working through his spirit-filled people. Stephen then dies and he falls asleep. Because Stephen knew that this Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What a passage. But what do we do with a passage like this? I want to ask us two questions this morning. First question is this. Do you find yourself this morning resisting Jesus? Are you more like the Sanhedrin? And I'm not saying that you're ready to pick up stones and kind of throw them. No, no, no. But Jesus made the Jews then and the Sanhedrin uncomfortable because this Jesus, he challenged their worldview because he claimed he was the only one that, well, he was the only way that you could get to know God. And that kind of shook up their whole way of thinking. It made them uncomfortable and they resisted him. Are you resisting him this morning? If you are, I just urge you to give him a second hearing because Stephen shows us that he's not just a random guy that appeared. He's actually been talked about across history throughout the whole of the Old Testament and he fulfills what the Old Testament had been talking about. And Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the one who brings us to the living God. And so if, you, if Jesus makes you feel uncomfortable, if you find yourself resisting him, give him a second hearing. If you've got questions, please come and ask them. Because by trusting in him, we get to know our maker, the one we were made for. But my second question for you, my first question is, are you resisting him? But my second question is, for those who do love him, are you standing for him? We've got a great and glorious task as followers of Jesus to actually tell other people about him. And I've been really encouraged hearing stories of some of you guys doing that. 
Um, I was really encouraged when I heard that on Friday, um, Sarah Stonebreaker in our light traditional service was invited uh, to go and speak at her old high school. Um, she just shared her a bit of her testimony, a bit of her story, hopefully to break down some barriers of people that are fairly negative towards Jesus. But how good's that that she said yes? And she spoke out for him. I was also really encouraged. Helen, Helen told me that um, Gemma Peasley, who's in our growth group, uh, who's doing a gap year this year, and he's, she's currently on mission, um, she'd been praying for this one friend, and she actually, about a month ago, shared her story, her testimony with this one friend. How cool is that? I'm so encouraged when, when I see people standing for him, but I pray that we would be increasingly known as those people that stand up for Jesus. Yes, it will be hard. Stephen knew that. But as we stand up for Jesus, I pray that we would be more and more embodying the Christ we proclaim. See, when Stephen, as he's about to die, he says, don't hold this against them. He proclaimed the truth, but boy, was he looking a whole lot like Christ. Was he transformed into the likeness of Jesus? Would we stand up for Jesus? And as we do, would we know that this gospel is unstoppable? Um, I said at the 8.30 service that I have a finely manicured back garden, and Anne Sandell, if anyone, would know that that is not the case. So I can't trick anyone here. Um, but in our back garden, there are some dandelions that sort of pop up every now and then. And uh, me and my daughter, Ruby, she's about a year, not quite a year and a half, but sometimes we go out there and she likes to pick them and to, to blow on them. And when we just had a couple, I think, oh, that's great. Like Ruby's picked them up and blown them and our dandelion problem is gone. No. that is. See, when she blew on them, the seeds scattered and produced like this harvest of dandelions in our back garden. See, when Stephen died, the people scattered. But when they scattered, what does it say they did in chapter 8, verse 4? They ran around preaching the gospel. It kept spreading. It is unstoppable. And so I pray we would be those that stand. And as we stand, would we know that we don't stand alone, that the king of the universe stands with us? Stephen saw that. He stands with us. And he stood for us in our place on the cross where we should have been. We should have been there. But because he stood for us, we get to know the living God. Are we resisting him? Are we standing for him? He stands with us and he stood for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is great and he is glorious. I pray for those who... Oh, Jesus just perhaps makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable... I pray that we wouldn't resist him. We'd see that he's good, that history backs up what he did, that he was real, 
the resurrection seals the deal. But also this Jesus, through him we get to know you. And I also just pray for those that do know you. Give us your boldness to stand even when it's hard. And to be encouraged to know that your mission and your plan cannot be stopped. For you are mighty to save. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.